Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, to the Native American Studies channel for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Tripp, speaking... Welcome, everyone, to the Native American Studies channel for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Tripp, speaking today with Timothy J. Shannon, Gettysburg College Professors of History. Welcome, Professor Shannon. I'm glad to be here, Ryan. Thank you for having me on the program. So today we're going to be discussing uh, Professor Shannon's new book, Indian Captive, Indian King, Peter Williamson in American and Britain, published by Harvard University Press just this year. Usually on the show, we uh, kind of have preliminary uh, assessments of the cover of the book and we discuss the cover, but we I've actually integrated been able to integrate uh, the cover inquiries into the uh, actual interview questions. So uh, let's just dive right into the book. And I'll, uh, but first, of course, uh, why did you choose to study the life of Peter Williamson? And what shaped your approach to the servant trade, his picaresque narratives, and his kidnapping lawsuits against the magistrates who banned him from Aberdeen? Well, Ryan, uh, I'll start off by telling you a little bit about who Peter Williamson was, because he's not a familiar figure, certainly to modern Americans. It's a little different if you've grown up in Scotland, where uh, people still do know about him. But uh, on this side of the Atlantic, uh, he's not particularly well known. He is somebody who lived in the 18th century. His claim to fame was that he said he had been kidnapped from his native Aberdeen and sold into servitude in North America, that he came to Pennsylvania in that manner, uh, that he was uh, eventually taken captive by Delaware Indians on the eve of the French and Indian War in North America, that he made his escape from them, uh, enlisted in the British Army, and then uh, became a French prisoner of war during the Seven Years' War, ultimately uh, was repatriated to Britain when he was uh, freed from, uh, from his confinement as a prisoner of war. And he made a living for himself in Britain by dressing up in Indian clothing and telling his story in taverns and coffee houses and publishing a narrative of his time in North America called French and Indian Cruelty. And eventually he managed to uh, make his way back to Aberdeen, where while he was engaged in this business, he was actually uh, banished by the city fathers as a charlatan, somebody who was... Uh, basically a confidence man trying to uh, get money from uh, gullible believers of his story. And he turned around and he sued the city magistrates of Aberdeen to prove his case and ultimately uh, managed to win that lawsuit. So I first learned about Williamson um, a long time ago, about 20 years ago, when I was uh, doing a uh, research fellowship at the John Carter Brown Library in Providence, Rhode Island. And at that time, I was interested in images of Indians from the 18th century. And I thought I had pretty much seen most of the published images from that era. But I came upon this image of a Delaware Indian 
in an Irish edition of a French travel narrative. So uh, this is a, a fairly obscure uh, book. And I had never seen this image before. It was simply called a Delaware Indian. And I wanted to know where it came from. What was its provenance? And digging into that, I discovered that it was actually a copy of an image of Williamson in his Indian dress that had appeared in his narrative. And uh, the first time it had appeared in his narrative was 1759. So in trying to track down the story of that image, I found out who Williamson was, read his narrative, and became very much interested in his story. Uh, to, to answer your question about um, why did I choose to study him you know, in, in depth, there is no real modern biography of him. Uh, people have known about him. For quite a while, uh, certainly uh, historians in North America who have worked on captivity narratives as a, as a genre of American literature were familiar with his narrative, but they tended to dismiss it out of hand as a uh, as a fabrication. So that interested me. You know, did he in fact uh, make this story of captivity up? And uh, I also thought that uh, as I read more about his narrative and, and more about him, I was struck by this manner in which he had turned his captivity into a sort of career. Uh, by performing his captivity story in taverns and coffee houses, and then ultimately uh, publishing it in multiple editions of his narrative. Um, there are lots of other captivity narratives uh, that come out of 18th century North America, but most of them are by people who are from fairly obscure backgrounds and then kind of disappear back into their obscure backgrounds after their narratives are published. Williamson was the only captive I knew of who, who made a career of it. And so that really intrigued me as well. Uh, you, you asked me also about uh, my approach to his picaresque narrative and uh, his kidnapping lawsuits. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about those. So his narrative called French and Indian Cruelty um, does fit many of the conventions of the captivity narrative genre, which had been a part of American literature since um, the late 17th century when we first have the uh, Puritan captivity narratives of people like Mary Rowlandson. But his narrative was the first one of these captivity narratives to come out of the era of the French and Indian War. And so that kind of interested me. It was a departure from the Puritan captivity narratives that had preceded it because it was not particularly concerned with issues of um, spiritual trial or theology. He was not somebody who was interpreting Indian captivity as a test from God or a test of his spiritual faith. Uh, it was a much gorier captivity narrative. It emphasized torture and murder. Uh, the Indians that he depicted in it were, were very brutal. And in that way, it kind of anticipated the captivity narratives that became very popular during the era of the American Revolution. Think of uh, Daniel Boone, for example. And so I found his narrative to be uh, an interesting bridge in that regard from uh, what we knew from the uh, earlier colonial period with primarily female captives writing about their uh, captivity experiences, and then the early national period of uh, the formation of the United States. Uh, in terms of his kidnapping lawsuits, uh, this. Uh, this was very interesting. He ended up uh, engaging in two lawsuits. The first one, which I've already mentioned, was against the city magistrates of Aberdeen who banished him when he returned home in 1758. And he, um, and he sued them basically on the grounds of uh, 
that that they um, had kicked him out of town, had, had banished him uh, for claiming to be someone he was not. And so that was basically a lawsuit in which he tried to prove his identity. And this was very fascinating to me because this is a uh, pre-modern era. We don't have fingerprints. We don't have dental records. So how did somebody in the 1750s prove he was who he said he was to a skeptical court? Uh, that that case of um, identity and impersonation uh, was very interesting to me. And then his second lawsuit was against the merchants who had invested in the ship that carried him to North America. And so he sued them for kidnapping, that he had been a youth at the time he was taken to America, that he had been taken there against his will. And I was very interested in investing, investigating that case because we often hear about, you know, uh, people being kidnapped into servitude or slavery uh, during the colonial era. Uh, certainly the Robert Louis Stevenson novel, Kidnapped, is a very famous version of that story. Um, but we very rarely get this degree of depth on somebody who made these accusations. And so I was able to go to Scotland and investigate the records of these two court cases in the Scottish National Archives. And so that's why I decided to do this deep dive into the story of Peter Williamson. So in these lawsuits, you argue that in all the testimony related to Williamson's alleged kidnapping from 1743 Aberdeen, the only two elements of the story that appear to be outright lies concern his family members. Can you elucidate his impulses for these outright lies in the testimony? Sure. Uh, so when Williamson returns to Aberdeen, uh, in order to prove his identity, what he what he starts doing is collecting affidavits, depositions from people who um, he says knew him as a child. He claimed to have been born in a rural parish outside of the city of Aberdeen and then to have been kidnapped from the city when he was a youth. And so uh, as we reconstruct uh, his life, his early life from these affidavits, it becomes clear that he did come from a large rural family that he had a father and a mother and, and several siblings. He claimed in his narrative that his father had sent him to live with an aunt in Aberdeen so that he could go to school in the city. Uh, but in the testimony that comes from his former neighbors and uh, people who claim to have known him as a child, it emerges that this family history he's constructed for himself seems a little suspect. Uh, from the best of what I was able to reconstruct, his mother died probably somewhere around the time he was about uh, 10 years old, around 1740 or so. And then there are references to his father um, going bankrupt, to his father basically being kicked off of his land. In Scotland at this time, it was very common for a landlord to raise rents to exorbitant levels so that he could clear tenants off the land and make better use of it, probably by converting it to uh, pasturage for sheep or for cattle. And so it would appear that Williamson's father was kicked off of his land and that the family's fortunes took a pretty steep uh, nosedive. And so the question is, how did Williamson actually end up in Aberdeen? He claims that his father sent him there to live with his aunt. But in fact, uh, it would appear that there's no corroborating evidence for his aunt. There's her; She is never named in any of this testimony. Uh, when pressed, he cannot identify the address where she lived or anything like that. And so um, he, he appears to have fabricated her. 
And then he also tells a story about his father coming to find him after he had been kidnapped, that his father had made every effort to um, find a, a local magistrate who would be willing to uh, sign a warrant to search the ship where he was being held. But of course, the magistrates were in cahoots with the merchants, and so this never happened. And there's no evidence that that kind of uh, legal pursuit of him ever occurred. So I think Williamson fabricated information about his family, particularly his, his father's pursuit of him and his aunt, in order to present himself as the son of a middle-class family, somebody from a very respectable background who by sheer chance happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and was kidnapped into servitude. Uh, and that's a very different story from presenting himself as kind of a street urchin, somebody from very poor circumstances who was you know, quite possibly living a hand-to-mouth existence in the city streets, may have been abandoned by his father or perhaps had run away from his family and therefore got swept into the servant trade as, a, as many poor youngsters were, you know, being signed into servitude uh, because he was basically a ward of the city, that he was dependent on the charity of others. For the first lawsuit, Lord Kames in 1762 decides primarily in uh, Williamson's favor. But how did Williamson's identity as a merchant in the second lawsuit shape the course of the legal proceedings? Yeah, so in the first lawsuit, um, Williamson you know, presents himself as this son of a, of a middle-class family, and he does succeed in assembling some important witnesses who claim to have known him as a child and are willing to testify that he is the same person that they knew as a child. And ultimately, the case is decided by a very famous Scottish uh, judge named Lord Com, and he is the chief justice of the um, the Court of Session in Edinburgh. It's the equivalent of the Scottish Supreme Court. And the interesting thing about this ruling that Lord Com makes when he rules in Williamson's favor is he doesn't endorse Williamson's story necessarily. He doesn't cite as evidence the story of Williamson's aunt or of his father trying to find him. Rather, Lord Com cites uh, an act that was passed by the British Parliament in 1718 called the Transportation Act. And the Transportation Act was the national legislation that governed the exportation of convicted felons and vagabonds to the colonies as servants. And what Lord Com does in this decision, he says, according to the Transportation Act, you can only uh, uh, export poor, uh, poor youngsters, basically, um, uh, vagabonds and, and, and folks like that. You can only export them to the colonies as indentured servants if they willingly agree to go and if they're at least 15 years old. And Lord Com looks at the record of uh, Williamson's baptism and says, you know, he was not 15 at the time he sailed for America. He was he was 13 years old. Therefore, he was underage. Therefore, it was not legal to ship him to North America. Therefore, he wins his lawsuit. Uh, and that's, um, you know, it's a great victory for Williamson. There's a sizable award of damages uh, that he, he puts to good use. But it is not an endorsement of Williamson's presentation of himself as coming from a middle-class background. And so when Williamson engages in his second lawsuit, he turns right around and sues the merchants of the ship that sent him to North America. He kind of presents himself, uh, continues to present himself in this kind of middle class way. He starts calling himself Peter Williamson, merchant of Edinburgh, 
Uh, and he, it's very important for him to continue to cultivate this kind of uh, aspirational status of being a respectable middle-class person uh, rather than being depicted as a homeless, poor waif who was caught up in the servant trade. His, his legal opponents are going to argue throughout the entire lawsuit that uh, if Williamson was on the ship that they sent to America, he was there willingly and he signed his indenture willingly and therefore he was never kidnapped. Uh, Williamson, in order to make his case against them, has to find evidence that would indicate that he was in fact kidnapped. It's a much harder case to prove in this second instance. Yes, I, I was uh, surprised by Lord Combs' somewhat uh, favorable ruling in the first lawsuit. Um. <laughs> yes, it is. It, it is very and, uh, surprising. You know, it's a great sort of one of the other yeah. things that attracted me to his story. It's a great underdog story. You have somebody who's going into court against some very powerful people, and he manages to prevail both times. In French and Indian cruelty, the narrative that you alluded to earlier, Williamson writes that. After the planners, the planner is the ship that connect, that transported him to uh, to the uh, the Americas. After the planner's shipwreck and his transshipment from Cape May to Philadelphia, Williamson writes, "It was my lot to be sold to one of my countrymen, whose name was Hugh Wilson, a North Briton, for the term of seven years." Why do you assess his description of this sale as plausible, in contrast to Williamson's own claims that Wilson granted? Williamson, uh, posthumous freedom from the indenture, and that he subsequently married a planter's daughter. That is, why was it, as you argue, much more likely that Williamson continued to serve out his indenture for Wilson's heirs after his death? Uh, so Williamson, when he arrives in America, according to the story he tells in his narrative, he is shipwrecked off the coast of uh, New Jersey, and then uh, the, the survivors of the shipwreck are uh, transported to Philadelphia, where they are sold uh, as indentured servants in much the same way that you might imagine a slave auction occurring at this time in a city like uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Now, in his narrative, this is it's, it's only two or three paragraphs in which he talks about his life as a servant, but he does identify his master as a person named Hugh Wilson, who was a fellow Scotsman who, according to Williamson, had come to North America in a similar manner uh, many years earlier. Uh, and that's about all he tells us about Wilson, other than that he was a, a good uh, master who uh, allowed Williamson to go to school in the winter. And then that when Wilson died, he left to Williamson uh, a bequest, including uh, 200 pounds uh, in, in money, as well as um, you know his... Uh, um, uh, wearing clothes and uh, tools and a horse and a, and a variety of other things. In other words, this very kind master who appears to have been a childless bachelor kind of took in Williamson as his own son and then provided for him after his death. Now, this is a very interesting story and one you would think would be almost impossible to corroborate because there's just not enough information there to kind of figure out who this Hugh Wilson is and then to find his will and so forth. But with a lot of uh, time spent in the archives here in Pennsylvania, in the state archives in Harrisburg, and then in some local county archives, I was, in fact, able to find uh, Hugh Wilson, who lived in uh, Chester County, uh, Pennsylvania, just west of Philadelphia, in the period when Williamson says he was in uh, uh, North America and when he was a servant. And with a little more work, especially in genealogical sources, 
it is true that this Hugh Wilson had actually come to North America as a child servant during the 1680s. There's a record of him uh, in, in a local county court uh, where the, the judge had to determine his age in order to determine the length of his indenture. And so Hugh Wilson was, in fact, 12 years old when he arrived in North America. So suddenly, you know, this is a very interesting piece of evidence that corroborates Williamson's description of his master. But then uh, this whole story about um, Wilson treating uh, Williamson as a son, that begins to fall apart because I was able to, after I was able to identify Hugh Wilson, I did in fact find his will. And his will indicates that he was married and that he did have three children. And when he died, he left nothing to any servants. He left his estate, as you would expect, to his wife and to his adult sons. And so Williamson is not included in uh, in Wilson's will. We would not expect him really to have been because at this time, servants were considered heritable property, just like livestock or real estate. They would pass on to the heirs of the person who had owned them in the event of death. And so I postulate then that um, after Wilson's death, Williamson probably served out the rest of his term until uh, he, he gained his freedom by you know, arriving at the end of his indenture. And there, my suspicions there were confirmed by tax records that indicate a Peter Williamson who was living in Chester County in 1753 and 1754 as an independent laborer. Uh, and that's typically what a, a former indentured servant would have done. He would have hired out as a farmhand to some you know, local neighbor, maybe even his, his former master. And so I think that's what happened to Williamson and that he was not living, again, this sort of um, fabricated middle class existence where he's enjoying uh, the benefits of a bequest from a kind master. But in fact, he's living like most other former indentured servants on the lower end of the social spectrum, probably continuing to do the same kind of work he did as a servant, only now is an employee of somebody who's uh, wealthier than he is. On a related note, please explain how timing, geography, benevolent paternalism, and general sources all culminated in your conclusion that Williamson invented his later captivity by Native Americans. In addition, um, if and if possible, uh, can you compare and contrast the 18th and 19th century editions of his uh, narratives, as well as its reading, as well as their reading publics? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Williamson claims that uh, shortly after he is freed from his indenture, he uses the bequest he received from uh, Hugh Wilson to buy a farm in the Lehigh Valley, which at that point is the northern frontier of Pennsylvania. And that he settles there and lives this kind of nice domestic life with a, a, a woman he is married. And that um, in, uh, I believe he dates it to October 1754, one night uh, Indians show up and raid his uh, household. They burn his buildings and they take him captive. And then he endures this three, month of, three months of this very horrific captivity, marching with his captors, basically being enslaved by them, forced to witness their brutal torture of uh, and murder of other captives. He's tortured himself. Uh, and then he, he makes a thrilling uh, escape in the middle of the night. So this captivity story of his is very central to uh, the narrative that he publishes in, uh, in when he returns to Britain in the 1750s. And I immediately suspected uh, the 
the truthfulness of his Indian captivity for a number of reasons. One, uh, we do know that there were a lot of Indian captives taken in Pennsylvania at the outset of the Seven Years or French and Indian War, but that those captivities did not begin until October of 1755, a year later than Williamson's captivity. What, what I discovered in reading Williamson's narrative is that there were certainly enough details that would indicate he was familiar with the Pennsylvania frontier, but that other details didn't hold true. For example, some of the tortures he described that Indians inflicted on colonists uh, were not the types of tortures that would have typically been used by Indians when they were dealing with captives. Also, he names several other captives who, uh, who endured captivity alongside him. None of those names pan out. They are not found in any lists or accounts of captivities that happened at this time. So my suspicion was that he had invented his captivity as kind of a selling point for his story when he returned to England in, uh, in the late 1750s and began uh, telling his tale and impersonating an Indian. His uh, captivity narrative was never published in, in an American edition in the 18th century, but it did prove to be popular in 18th century Britain. And so within the first 10 years of uh, his return to Britain, it is published in six different editions. It's published in London, in Edinburgh, in Glasgow. It's published in Dublin. And then um, in the 19th century, it continues uh, to be published in new editions. And so it proves to be kind of an enduring story of North American Indian captivity for British readers. Uh, the, you ask about the main differences between the 18th and 19th century editions. The 18th century editions um, are usually, well, are, are complete. They tell the story of Williamson from his kidnapping through his captivity and his military service uh, in Canada. The 19th century editions tend to be truncated. They tend to focus on his uh, on his kidnapping, and then they focus on his captivity. Uh, and there are some 19th century editions that are clearly being published for juvenile audiences, basically young adult readers, right, uh, who might be interested in stories of Native Americans or Native American captivity. There are some 19th century editions that are also published by Scottish abolitionist societies because they are trying to uh, attack the slave trade in Africa. And they find in Williamson an example of a, a compelling story about being kidnapped as a child and torn away from your home. And so in the 19th century, Williamson's story kind of comes to a, a second life as an anti-slavery tract and as a, a book intended for young readers. How and why did Williamson's tale about the case of the drunken British soldier, I remember this from the books, uh, set during uh, the Seven Years' War, testify, as you contend, to his participation in the exchange of news, stories, and gossip among soldiers in a French and Indian War, or excuse me, Seven Years' War uh, campaigns? Actually, it is a French and Indian War theater. If Williamson did not suffer undual cruelty as a prisoner of war, then why entitle and publish the narrative as French and Indian cruelty? Uh, so Williamson, after he uh, supposedly escapes his, his alleged Indian captivity, claims that uh, he wants to be avenged on uh, the people who had destroyed his life. And so he enlists in the British Army and serves in the opening campaigns of the uh, French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War. Uh, in North America. And uh, 
it becomes a little easier to track his story here because he uh, he 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 enlists in a regiment that we have records for. Of course, we don't have muster rolls or pay lists that would help us actually identify Williamson as uh, as as being a part of that regiment. But we do have a certificate that two of his commanding officers sign uh, during one of his lawsuits, attesting to his service under their command in this regiment during the war. And so uh, using Williamson's story that he tells about his military service in the narrative, uh, I was able to corroborate that with other sources uh, revolving around the service of his regiment in these different campaigns. And one example of that is in his narrative, he tells a story about serving at the British Fort Oswego on Lake Ontario in 1756. And he tells this kind of far out story about an Irish soldier that he knows who goes out one night and gets drunk and falls asleep, you know, kind of beyond the perimeter of the fort and awakens the next day to discover that he has been scalped overnight. And so his, uh, his the front of his shirt is soaked in blood. He staggers back into camp and people say he's he's going to die. But in fact, uh, a surgeon treats him and he's able to recover. And this seems like a typical sort of fabrication that Williamson would insert into his story in order to juice it up a bit, give a, give a thrill to a reader. But in fact, uh, this same story appears in two other accounts of the Oswego campaign, neither of which was published uh, at the time Williamson wrote his account. So uh, one is from a military engineer who was serving in Oswego. Another is from a civilian labor contractor. Both of them left accounts of their service in Oswego that tell the same story. And so that's a good example of this kind of corroborating evidence that allows me actually to assign a much greater degree of truth to Williamson's stories about his military service than about his Indian captivity. Uh, and then you ask, why did Williamson choose to name his narrative a French and Indian cruelty when, in fact, by his own admission, it doesn't appear that he suffered unduly as a French prisoner of war? And as far as I can tell, he was never an Indian captive and didn't suffer any of the uh, tortures that he describes in his narrative. And I think the answer there, a very short answer to your question is uh, one word, marketing. Uh, when he returns to Britain and he decides <laughs> to sell this uh, narrative, I think he incorporates the Indian captivity because British audiences at this time, this is 1756, 1757, 1758, they're fascinated by the war in North America. The British newspapers are covering accounts of uh, Braddock's defeat on the Monongahela River in 1755, the fall of Oswego when Williamson himself is taken prisoner in 1756, the Fort William Henry massacre, which becomes the basis of the story of the last Mohegans. British newspapers and magazines are replete with accounts of this theater of the war. And suddenly, British readers had become very, very interested in Native Americans and especially Native American way of war. So Williamson names his account French and Indian cruelty because he's kind of taking advantage of the patriotic sentiments that have been stirred up by this war and kind of the, uh, uh, the, the curiosity of the British public about this distant place and the native peoples who live there. And certainly it, it's a lot of blood and gore and guts because it's it's essentially war literature. So it's a war story that the British public is very interested in reading. For the So you've already 
touched on a reproduction of this image, but for the 1759 edition of his narrative, an anonymous artist illustrated Williamson in purportedly, I believe, uh, Delaware attire, a portrait that appears on your book's cover, as you already alluded to. You contend that the frontispiece of the first edition of Robinson Crusoe served as an inspiration, but that the artist also used the print of an exhibition of a Mohawk warrior who had allegedly captured a baron at the Battle of Lake George. How did this latter illustration serve as a model? And did the advertisements that appeared for the Mohawk's coffeehouse exhibitions in January 1759 prompt Williamson to bring his own Indian performance south from Scotland? And did he purposely model the accoutrements he incorporated into his act off the image of the Mohawk. So your question here is addressing uh, what is in fact the cover image of the book, this uh, engraving of Williamson that was included in his narrative, uh, the fourth edition of his narrative, which was published in London in 1759. And then various versions of it appeared in um, magazines, appeared in subsequent editions of his narrative. And in fact, in uh, all sorts of other contexts as well, like the one that initially led me to his story in the first place. And in it, we see Williamson as a full-length portrait. And Williamson is wearing Native American clothing uh, that would have been typical of the mid-18th century. It's a combination of Native-made garments like moccasins and leggings, but also European trade goods like a linen shirt, Uh, He's smoking a pipe tomahawk in one hand. He has a musket slung over his shoulder. He has a what was called a scalping knife uh, held in another hand. Uh, He's wearing war paint on his face and a feathered headdress. And in the background, you see scenes from his narrative, a scene of of, uh, torture of a a captive who's been tied to a tree. You see an Indian canoe uh, in the water and, and, and so forth. So it's a very interesting image that has certain ethnographic details about Native Americans at this time uh, correct, uh, but also that is playing to kind of the blood and guts theme of Williamson's narrative. Uh, It it does bear some resemblance to the original image in um, the first edition of Robinson Crusoe that had been published about 50 years earlier, and that showed Robinson Crusoe in a similar full-length pose against uh, a backdrop of the island where he'd been stranded. He has two um, muskets uh, that he's holding, and also Robinson Crusoe is dressed in skins and animal hides that he used for his clothing on his island. So I think both of the images call to mind this notion of an Englishman or a Briton who's been stranded abroad in a strange land and who's going to survive you know, by his own pluck and by his own resourcefulness. Uh, the other image that you allude to in your question is much more contemporary to the Williamson image, and it involves a Mohawk warrior who was exhibited in London in January of 1759. There were these um, uh, newspaper advertisements, you know, inviting people to come to a tavern to spend a few pennies to see the Mohawk warrior who had captured Baron Dieskau, the French commander, at the Battle of Lake George in 1755. And uh, a few weeks after those advertisements appeared, a print also appeared for sale depicting this Mohawk warrior. And it's a very interesting image. It, um, in, in many respects, it's, it's an oddball image because it doesn't particularly look like an Indian in the image, but he has Indian artifacts 
like a pipe tomahawk and a um, and moccasins and a gorget around his neck. And if you compare that image side by side with Williamson's image, which uh, you know appeared about six months later, it would appear definitely that the artist who did Williamson's image was copying the image of the Mohawk warrior. And I find that a very interesting connection because, um, you know, Williamson was basically engaged in the same business as this so-called Mohawk warrior. He was displaying himself for profit, you know, before audiences and taverns and coffee houses. And I'm pretty certain that, in fact, the, the Mohawk Indian depicted in that earlier print was not an Indian at all. There are cases where uh, Mohawk Indians did cross the Atlantic and engage in such public exhibitions in London, but all those are fairly well documented because they usually involve sponsors or promoters, uh, you know, in Britain or in North America who left a paper trail about this. And the intriguing thing about this Mohawk uh, exhibit exhibition in 1759 is there's no paper trail other than these newspaper advertisements in this image. So I actually postulate in the book that it's even possible that this um, Mohawk warrior may have been Williamson himself. You know, in another uh, version of his story, another another Indian impersonation. But uh, I think it's more likely that it's somebody else engaged in the same business as Williamson, dressing up as an Indian to tell stories about the North American frontier. Heading into his uh, later years, did the 1760 establishment of Williamson's American Coffee House in Edinburgh, Scotland, replete with American exotica, contribute to a shift in his narrative eight years later, from French and Indian cruelty to an American experience that had him traipsing about America, as you argue, under the tutelage of his Indian family. Also, if possible, can you touch on um, his uh, divorce as well as his uh, death and his being buried on top of the deceased infant, John Scott? Uh, your, your question is asking about uh, Williamson's later career after he gives up his, his, his touring days as an Indian impersonator. And this is a, a really fascinating sort of third act to his life where he settles in the city of Edinburgh, the seat of the Scottish Enlightenment, one of the most refined and famous cities in Great Britain. And what he does uh, in Edinburgh is he opens up a coffee house and he calls it uh, the American Coffee House. And he starts displaying various artifacts that he says come from North America. And so I, I like to compare him in this regard to a, a retired sports star of today, right? Uh, say a big basketball player or football player whose playing days are over oftentimes uh, will open up a restaurant, you know, in, uh, in, in, in the nightlife of their hometown and kind of turn their celebrity as sports stars into a, a new business, a restaurateur, you know, a, a local person about town who's well-known and well-liked. And Williamson, I think, is very fascinating in this regard because he's engaged in the same sort of entrepreneurial drive to, uh, to own the means of production of his celebrity. It's not enough that he's gained a sort of fleeting fame as a former Indian captive, that he's made some money by telling his tale of woe and by touring around to cities like Dublin and Glasgow and London and Edinburgh to tell his story. Now he's going to open up a coffee house where he's going to continue to tell his story, uh, but also profit from the sale of coffee and alcohol and, and everything else that gets sold in an 18th century uh, British coffee house. And at the same time, too, he also buys a printing press. 
and he starts teaching himself the craft of printing, and he's going to go into business as a printer. So uh, the same things that drove his celebrity when he returned to Britain, performances in coffee houses, and his printed narrative, now he's going to own the means of producing and sustaining that celebrity. The, the challenge for him in the 1760s is that after the war in North America is won, British attention you know, tends to shift away from Native Americans in North America. He can't continue to make hay you know, from his story of captivity. So we begin to see certain subtle shifts in the way Williamson presents himself in his coffee house. Uh, it, the, the story he wants to tell about North America becomes less a, a war story about captivity and torture and blood and guts on the frontier. And now he kind of recasts himself as a cosmopolitan gentleman traveler, somebody who has been abroad, somebody who has lived among strange peoples and strange lands and learned about them and now is coming home to share that information with audiences as a sort of uh, educational pursuit, something that would be quite, you know, uh, quite acceptable for the coffeehouse culture of the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment in Edinburgh. So the artifacts that he shows in his coffee house tend to be things related to um, North American Indians, but in more of kind of an anthropological or ethnographic context that he's displaying them. For example, he has a, a miniature canoe that he displays. He has a statue of an Indian that he claims was given to him by Grateful Mohawk. So a, a very interesting um, element of, of his uh, collection of American exotica, as I call it, is that he always comes up with these crazy sort of uh, sources or provenance for these objects, uh, most of which I'm sure are entirely fabricated, just as fabricated as his captivity story. But in one instance, he claims to have the scalp of a famous Pennsylvania Indian warrior named Captain Jacobs. And he says the scalp was given to him by none other than Benjamin Franklin, right? So in this in this one object, a, you know, mm-hmm. a a patron of his coffee house can be connected not just to Franklin, but also to a famous Native American Indian chief. So um, he engages in this uh, sort of activity and gradually presents himself now as kind of a cosmopolitan man about town. He does publish in 1768 another uh, book called The Travels of Peter Williamson. And this book is a a hodgepodge of different um, things that he's plagiarized from other travel narratives that came out of the Seven Years' War era. Books that have been published, for example, by returning uh, uh, veteran officers of the British Army talking about their American experiences, but also books about the natural history of North America, describing the plants and animals of North America and so forth. And he kind of stitches together this Frankenstein's monster of a travel narrative that he's plagiarized from various sources, but now he transforms himself in the narrative as kind of the gentleman traveler. Rather than enduring a three-month captivity among enemy Indians, now he's, he talks about having been raised as an infant among the Indians and having followed them around almost like a, um, you know, a full-bore cultural immersion for somebody involved in a study abroad program or something like that. So he claims to, for example, have seen uh, Niagara Falls when he's when he's traveling around uh, the continent with his uh, with with his Indian family. So it's a very different version of the captivity tale he's telling, and in fact, it's one that blatantly contradicts his earlier captivity story. But he doesn't seem to mind that. You know, he's kind of cultivated this reputation now as a teller of tall tales. Um, 
you also ask a little bit about um, the circumstances of his divorce and then later his death, and uh, both of which kind of testify to um, the reputation he continues to cultivate within uh, Edinburgh as this kind of local eccentric who everybody loves hearing the stories from, but not everybody is entirely convinced are, are believable. Uh, he marries uh, several times after he returns to Britain. And um, in his, uh, his first marriage, uh, he, he, we don't know too much about uh, his wife, but um, she dies. And then he marries the second time to a woman named Jean Wilson, who is the daughter of an Edinburgh bookseller. And this marriage lasts about 17 years. There are several children uh, that are born to it. And also Williamson during this time appears to be going into business with Gene Wilson's father, the bookseller, because he's uh, selling books himself now out of his coffee house. And he's also in the printing business. And then everything goes south when he and Gene Wilson have a falling out and um, and he files for divorce. And so it becomes a very interesting story about how does one go about getting a divorce in the 18th century? But this being Williamson, of course, he publishes the story of his divorce in a in a book for everyone to read. And it is just chock full of salacious details about his marriage. Uh, he's filing for divorce on the grounds of infidelity, claiming that his wife has been carrying on with any number of paramours uh, behind his back. And so there's testimony from various witnesses, including servants in his household, that she's entertaining men uh, in their house while he is out on business, that she's carrying on affairs and the public houses and city streets with strange men. And ultimately, one of these men confesses, confesses to adultery with her, and that secures Williamson his divorce. But um, it also kind of makes him a subject of some public ridicule as well. And there are um, some references in London and Edinburgh newspapers to him being a cuckold uh, who you know pretends to be an Indian king, but doesn't even have the wherewithal to control and order affairs in his own marriage, in his own household. But if you're, if you're intrigued by Williamson's story, I certainly recommend that you um, look into this divorce because in many ways, it's a very modern tale that he's telling. It's kind of like a tabloid divorce, you know, being played out in our media today. And then he, he does marry uh, a third time to another woman. Again, we don't know too much about her, but during the 1790s now, he's He's aging. He's uh, he's in his 60s. He does have a, a successful business as a postmaster in Edinburgh. He's developed a penny post, but he ultimately goes back into his um, coffeehouse business and he dies in 1799 from old age. His his third wife predeceases him uh, by a year or two. And, and we know about this because of the burial record. But one interesting element in the burial record is it notes that he's been buried in another person's grave, uh, the grave of a person named John Scott, who apparently died when he was only five years old. And using that information, I was actually able to track down his grave in one of the burial grounds in Edinburgh, and it's still there, and you can, you can go visit his gravesite. But I find something very ironic or uh, interesting about the fact that he ends up uh, sharing a grave with a stranger uh, when he's you know, spent his whole life kind of doing these impersonations and taking on these different uh, images and uh, self-presentation to, to make his way through the world. So this is kind of his, 
final act of impersonation, if you will, you know, actually being interred under the gravestone of another person. As we discussed uh, earlier, there's a few students who uh, actually, uh, not for this book, but for another one of your uh, books it related to uh, Indian captive, Indian king, actually have a question sure, for I'd you. Sure, I'd be glad um, to answer it. In the third chapter... <laughs> Thank you. In the fir- third chapter of the first volume of your edited Going to the Source, you provide primary source exercises for student assessment of runaway advertisements from the late colonial period. A particular group of undergraduates wish to know, in addition to contractual payments and punitive measures for runaways, how do you distinguish a servant from a slave in advertisement evidence for your own research? Well, uh, uh, thank you for this question. And uh, the book you allude to, Going to the Source, is uh, a book that's designed to introduce uh, his, uh, students of American history to the various types of sources that uh, historians use uh, to study the different periods of American history and different groups within American history. And the particular chapter that their question alludes to is talking about the origins of slavery and the experience of indentured servitude in colonial America. And one of the sources that historians have long used to study both those institutions, servitude and slavery, are runaway ads in colonial newspapers. Uh, Colonial newspapers uh, first appeared in the very late 17th century, and then by the mid um, by the mid 18th century, uh, you know, uh, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, Newport, uh, Williamsburg, Charlestown uh, have newspapers of their own, and a, a very common form of advertising in these newspapers was masters trying to recover slaves or servants who had run away, uh, oftentimes stealing goods, uh, clothing in particular. Uh, when they left. And so these runaway ads are a very fascinating source to study uh, the physical appearance of slaves and servants in this era, uh, as well as their methods of resistance, their their types of um, relationships that they had with their masters. It's another way to study their uh, ethnic and racial origins, because these uh, advertisements often referred to the ethnic or racial or geographic background of the servants and slaves that they were trying to track down. Um, these ads typically were only a few lines, but they, they followed a very common format of describing the clothing of the person uh, when he or she ran away, how they ran away, did they run away individually or in groups, uh, also describing physical characteristics like obviously skin color, but also complexion, hair type, uh, height. Uh, if there were any distinguishing physical traits, like uh, perhaps a, uh, a limp or a, d- a deformed limb or something like that. So they're really a wonderful way of kind of uh, repainting or recapturing life among the lower sort, you know, servants and slaves in 18th century colonial society. So the question about how do you distinguish a servant from a slave in these ads um, is actually more complicated than you might think, uh, because uh, Oftentimes, when they describe complexion of the the fugitive, they did not simply say white or black, but they would use a a number of different types of terms to describe the skin color of somebody. Um, uh, Yellow, for example, was often used to describe somebody who was probably of biracial heritage, probably uh, uh, an African mother and a a white father. Sometimes the the term slave is used, especially if a slave ran away in the company of a servant, 
uh, as a way of distinguishing the servant from the slave. Another way is to look at the types of rewards that were offered for the fugitives. Typically speaking, slaves were worth more, uh, and so the reward might be higher. Uh, also, the types of punishments that were uh, allowed, that, that masters kind of uh, gave the public the right to inflict on these fugitives. Uh, it was common in southern colonies, for example, to outlaw a slave who ran away multiple times. And basically, when you outlawed a slave, that meant you gave permission to bounty hunters to kill that slave. Uh, kind of a, a wanted dead or alive situation where a master doesn't necessarily want the living slave back, but wants the fugitive slave killed as a lesson to other slaves who might consider running away. There was no legal option for outlawing a runaway servant. Uh, other ways that you might uh, distinguish them, servants oftentimes were described by ethnic designators. So a reference to a Dutch servant, which usually meant German servant or Irish servant. Uh, somebody like um, Peter Williamson, for example, if he had run away, might was, would probably have been described as a native of Scotland so that uh, people interested in apprehending him could listen for an accent, for example. Um, also, uh, certain physical elements of the servants could help you identify them as being African. Uh, there was a reference in many of these ads when it was a runaway slave to country marks. And country marks references ritual scarification on the face of some slaves from West Africa. Uh, these are scars that they would have carried with them. And so uh, this would be a way of identifying uh, one particular individual. Uh, another way that you could identify a servant versus a slave is by looking at the region where these advertisements came from. Obviously, the further south you go, the more likely it is that the labor force is made up of African slaves rather than white servants. And so uh, you'll see references to uh, slaves in places like Georgia, South Carolina, and Virginia. And uh, names, uh, the names of slaves oftentimes uh, had these references to ancient Rome or ancient Greece. You know, a slave might be named Apollo or Cato or something like that. Uh, and that was not something that that ritual of renaming is not something that happened to indentured servants. They would be carrying the names uh, that they had come over with when they had migrated to the Americas. So um, one of these, the things these, these ads help us do is kind of compare and contrast the experiences of slaves and servants in 18th century America to see uh, occasions where there was solidarity between them when servants and slaves, for example, would cooperate in running away together. It also helps us um, look at methods of resistance, uh, generally speaking, among slaves, slaves who were acculturated to America, slaves who perhaps had been born in America, uh, were comfortable speaking English, uh, tended to run away individually and try to make their way as free people, uh, as, as free people of color in colonial society. Whereas slaves who were often described as saltwater slaves or outlandish slaves, slaves who had recently come to America from Africa, more often uh, ran away in groups because they sought safety and solidarity with each other. And so when they ran away, uh, oftentimes it would be in groups of two, three, or more. Uh, so there's a lot that these runaway ads can tell us, not only about distinguishing servants from slaves, but distinguishing 
acculturated American-born slaves from African slaves. So I have one last question. What can we expect from you next? Uh, Vacation? Uh, Are you working on a new project that you can disclose? Are you working on a new project uh, or what? That's a a great question, you know, and historians are always thinking about the next project. Uh, The Williamson Project took me a very long time, and um, I'm glad right now to kind of have a, a breather from it. But, you know, often... As often happens, you know, what you think will be just a sideline or a little investigation snowballs into something much bigger. But my next project, which I'm just getting underway with now, uh, concerns Benjamin Franklin and his uh, relations with and writings about Native Americans. Um, You know, this is I alluded to it slightly earlier when I uh, mentioned uh, in Peter Williamson's, you know, account that he claimed to have met Benjamin Franklin and received this Indian scalp from him. Uh, Franklin is very much a central figure in Pennsylvania's Indian relations from uh, the 1750s uh, into the 1760s. You know, he's very much involved in the fighting of the Seven Years' War. As a printer, he publishes Indian uh, treaty records. He attends treaty conferences that uh, Pennsylvania is involved with. And so I'm I'm interested in how Franklin's experiences with real life Indians at treaty conferences um, uh, when Pennsylvania is at war in the 1750s, how those experiences shape Franklin's writings about Indians in things like his autobiography, uh, when he's in uh, London, when he writes about the American cause in the 1760s and 1770s, he often uses Native Americans as kind of allegories for the stories he wants to tell about the American colonists. And so I'm interested in that intersection of Franklin's real life experience with Indians and some of his ideas about Native Americans and the role they play in American society. Um, I'm not quite sure uh, if that is going to be a book or uh, just a long article or maybe even a series of articles yet, but I think that's what will be occupying me uh, for the next couple of years. Well, thank you, Professor Shannon, for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very uh, much for having me. I've enjoyed the opportunity to talk about the book, and I hope anyone who's intrigued, uh, you know, would feel free to follow up with me if they've got their own Williamson-like stories to tell. I'm sure sure our listeners will. This is uh, Ryan Tripp uh, signing off for the uh, New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. I hope you'll listen with us next time.